Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Let's open in prayer together. Our Father, we're so grateful as we have been reminded this morning to come to your word in such an environment. We're so thankful for that, and we pray we would not squander this opportunity to hear from your word to our lives and to our minds, that we might consider this central character, really, of the, of the scriptures, and that his faith may do something to our faith this morning, and that this God in whom he believed uh, would become real to us and the veil would be lifted and we could see this invisible God with all splendor and glory and all worthiness to change our lives for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Before we had uh, online streaming of movies, we had the DVD player. And before the DVD player, we had the VCR. And before the VCR, as I slowly reduce the number of you who will remember, <laughs> many of us were at the mercy of ABC, NBC, and CBS if we wanted to watch a movie at home on television with an extra hour of commercial breaks built in, usually on Sunday nights. One of my earliest memories of such a movie was the classic Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston as the tan, handsome, and confident Moses. For many of us, maybe that was our first and perhaps lasting impression of what Moses was like. For the Jews, at the time the Hebrews was written, it doesn't get better than Moses. He was it. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, closes with these words in Deuteronomy 34. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. We see here in the Hall of Faith, chapter 11 of Hebrews, two men take up the most space, Abraham and Moses, the central figures to the identity of the Jewish people and their covenants with God. We're going to look at some of the highlights of Moses' life the author gives us, and we're going to see that faith trusts in God and sides with his people in times of suffering and worldly loss. Moses shows us that while the world may oppose us, we gain strength and courage by seeing the invisible God and looking forward to his reward. I invite you to follow along in the sermon outline in your bulletin. First, the author actually starts with Moses' parents who obeyed God instead of the king. Let's look together at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
We read in Exodus that Pharaoh demanded all Hebrew boys be slain at birth, casting them into the Nile River. Sort of the counterpart, what we've seen in recent history with communist China and their one-child policy where frequently baby girls were killed. Under Pharaoh, it was the boys who were not allowed to live. They had a a no-male-child policy for the Hebrews. And as we read there, this plan wasn't working so well because the midwives feared God instead of the Pharaoh. And Moses' parents likewise did not fear the king's edict, instead did what was right with their baby, hiding Moses for three months. And it says because they saw the child was beautiful. Now this word in the original is a rich word far beyond beauty and appearance. It has connotations of being very special or favored. His parents discerned somehow that God's favor rested on this baby. God must have a a special purpose for him. He was no ordinary child, as we see in Acts 7. Jewish tradition holds that Moses' father had a dream that Moses would deliver Israel. Now, that's not in the Bible, so we cannot be certain about that. But it's clear that their faith was passed on to Moses and also something about his special purpose. We see in Acts chapter 7, Stephen the martyr gives that long speech where he recounts the history of Israel to that point. And when he's talking about Moses, he indicates that Moses was surprised that his fellow Jews did not understand that he would be their deliverer. So Moses must have learned something from his parents about this God of Israel and perhaps something of his own purpose as a deliverer for God's People. Now, the point the author is making here about faith, which is the theme of this chapter, of course, is that Moses' parents were not afraid of acting in ways that could get them in serious trouble with their king, their authority, because they wanted to obey God instead. And he says three months they hid the baby. So there's a, a perseverance there. Well, think about the audience of Hebrews. People were afraid of acting in ways that could get them in trouble with Caesar and his government, who, like Pharaoh, had the power to injure them and to make things very difficult for these Christians. But they needed to persevere. They needed to obey God and hold fast to Jesus, not give in to fear, not be intimidated. Like Peter says to the Jewish council in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. They were called to submit to authorities. The Bible's clear about that. But there's a time when you do not obey. And that time is when one of two things happen. When you're commanded to do something God forbids, like Pharaoh telling you to kill a baby, or when you're forbidden to do something God commands, like Peter and John preaching the gospel when their religious leaders told them not to. The faith of Moses' parents was demonstrated then in the risk and perseverance in that they obeyed God instead of the king. Let's look at Moses himself. First, he chose pain over privilege, pleasure, and property. Let's read in verse 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, 
for he was looking to the reward. Okay, for, from the world's perspective, Moses had it all. We really don't even have an analogy today for this kind of privilege and position that he had. He was the up-and-coming pharaoh, royalty. He had all the privileges of being in the royal family during a monarchy with unchecked authority. There are certain pleasures that come with that kind of position. Some of those pleasures, no doubt, sinful. Also had the nation's wealth at his disposal. The value of the treasures in Egypt is legendary. He had luxuries without end, people serving him in whatever he needed or wanted. Yet he left all of that. He refused the privilege, refused the pleasures, he refused the property. Why? Some of you, like me, watched the interview with Oprah Winfrey a few months ago on Sunday night with Prince Harry and Meghan. Many of us have a fascination with the crown, the royalty. In my case, the connection with the history of the wars and the empires. Fascinating to me. Prince Harry and Meghan have made news by distancing themselves from the crown. Prince Harry mentioned in the interview that he was disappointed that he was getting cut off from some of the funding and the security detail to which he was accustomed. But the way they were dressed... (laughs) Their accommodations, their daily schedule made it pretty clear that they weren't giving up as much as you might think. The interview would have been far more interesting if they were living in a tent, for instance. Leaving the royal family would be far more noteworthy if they had no possessions, no property. Even more impressive if the royal family had sent the British army to chase him down and try to kill him. Now that's a story. We would wonder why. What's driving you, Prince Harry, that you would leave all of that? What is so valuable to you that you would give up everything to leave it all? Moses left it all. He didn't have a stipend or a wardrobe or a security detail. When he left the palace, he gave up all privilege, pleasure, and all property For something else. Why? What was so valuable to Moses that he would make that kind of trade? What was so important that he would choose to give up all of that mistreatment with the people of God? The reproach of Christ and its reward. Philip says, faith will always make itself known through choices. Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God and and refused, turned his back on the privilege of the royalty. Faith always involves a yes or a no. You can't have it both ways. You have to choose. People today want only yes. I, I want Jesus and I want to live the way I want to. No. You have to choose. Moses had to choose. He could either identify with the Hebrew slaves or their Egyptian masters, one or the other, not both. Cockrell says this, Faith is choosing to follow God by obedience in pursuit of God's eternal reward. The corollary, however, is the rejection of the unbelieving world. Moses' yes to the people of God meant no to all that was his in Egypt. 
When Moses slayed the taskmaster, beating a Hebrew, that signaled where his loyalties were. It would have been way easier to sit back and not get involved. But Moses stepped up to take responsibility. He chose to identify with God's people and be mistreated. Again, why? The author tells us the reason in verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He made a calculation. He considered, he reckoned, he accurately calculated. In other words, he did the math. He made a calculation, the reproach of Christ and God's reward greater than Egypt. Affliction with God's people ultimately better than pleasure. Listen to Spurgeon. Pleasures are certainly better than afflictions according to any ordinary judgment. But Moses came to this conclusion. Although affliction might be God's worst, it was better than the pleasure of sin, which is evil's best. Moses counted the reproach to be better than the treasures of Egypt. This is great. Because even fasting with God is better than feasting in Egypt. Moses did the math. He considered the reward, which is eternal forever, far greater than Egypt's wealth, which would soon perish. The early church father, Chrysostom, said this, For when heaven was set before Moses, it was superfluous to admire an Egyptian palace. The reproach of Christ was of greater wealth than all his property and possessions. Now, what does he mean, the reproach of Christ? I mean, Moses lived 1,300 years before Christ. So how could he consider the reproach of Christ at all? Tom Schreiner is helpful here. Promises of redemption throughout Jewish history find their fulfillment in Christ, Jesus himself. He's the prophet, better than Moses, Deuteronomy 18. He's ultimately the king, promised in Genesis 17 and 35. The scepter promised to Judah belongs to Jesus, Genesis 49. He's the star from Jacob who will crush the enemies of the Lord, Numbers 24. We saw back in Hebrews 1, words from Psalm 102 about the Lord applied to Jesus. So a similar thought here. The reproach Moses suffered with his people is attributed to Christ. Those who identify with God's people identify with Jesus Christ. Remember Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. He'd been persecuting the church. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, Jesus had been resurrected and ascended to the Father. Yet, he says, Saul is persecuting him because Christ is so identified with his people that to persecute the church is to persecute the very body of Christ. Something similar might be said of the people of God in the Old Covenant. So, as Moses joins them in their suffering, he participates in the suffering of Christ. Now, In this Hall of Faith chapter, this is something new, actually. It's the first opportunity for the author to demonstrate that those who live by faith identify with God's people when they're suffering. Gundry says this, Faith entails sharing ill treatment 
with one's fellows in the community of the faithful. This makes Moses' choice relevant to his readers, doesn't it? It's been no fun to suffer for the sake of Christ, and they're actually tempted to go back. We saw back in chapter 10, some of them have lost their property. The author wants them to do the math along with Moses. He wants them to see how looking forward to God's reward is how Moses persevered. One commentator says this, Perpetual attention to the reward is the key to courageous perseverance in the face of opposition. So how do they continue in the midst of suffering and temptation to go back to comfort and safety? Follow Moses, which is ironic, isn't it? Because some of them want to go back to the Moses of the Old Covenant. No. Moses chose the reproach of Christ, the suffering of his people. Cockerell again, if Moses suffered shame for Christ, then one cannot escape such shame by abandoning Christ for Moses. Some compare this decision Moses made as the opposite of apostasy, something we've talked about throughout Hebrews, leaving the faith. Okay, we see throughout the warning patches, passages in particular. For Moses to choose Egypt would be like apostasy. To know the certainty of his calling yet stay in the palace, to have it easy and not suffer, to choose pleasure now versus eternal reward later, that's analogous to the very apostasy which threatens the audience of Hebrews. But when Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, the tense of that word refused in the original is definitive, meaning it's not like refusing cream for your coffee. and Not this time, maybe next time. No, it's rather completely rejecting totally once for all being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. There's no going back. So if the readers were to leave Christ in the church, it would be like Moses embracing his Egyptian identity and abandoning God's people. So the author is exhorting them, follow Moses. Choose to remain with God's people who are suffering. Reject the temporary advantages of turning away for the divine eternal reward for perseverance. A reward which is certain but unseen. Verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Which brings us to the second point B. Moses looked beyond an angry king to the invisible God. Let's look at verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Again, we see the strength of Moses' perseverance coming from seeing the invisible, the conviction of things not seen. Now, there's some debate about which part of Moses' life the author is referring to here when he says he left Egypt. Chronologically, that would, what would seem to fit best is when he flees for 40 years in Midian because that's what happens before the Passover and the Exodus and the parting of the sea, which are mentioned next in order. One difficulty, though, with that view is that Exodus says clearly Moses was afraid, and that's why he left. So I agree with many other scholars who think it's better to see this leaving Egypt as a summary of what is said next in terms of the Passover, the Exodus, etc. Either way, we see again the language of calculation. Okay, Moses is making decisions on factors others do not see. 
Being afraid of the king is certainly understandable. There's a sense in which Moses was afraid, as Exodus tells us, but ultimately he fears God, not the king. The faithful wear special glasses or spectacles that allow them to see past the visible to the invisible God. His actions were not dominated by fear of the king. Certainly he understood what his actions might mean for him as it relates to the king. But at a deeper level, he trusted God. The threat of the king's anger did not determine his actions. And the author wants his audience to know Christians should not fear their persecutors, even Caesar. Think of some other characters from the Bible. Think of Joshua and Caleb. They saw the same giants in the land that the other ten spies saw. But they also saw past the giants to the invisible almighty God who fulfills promises. They did the math. Think of David and Goliath. He saw the same angry beast of an armored man that everyone else saw. But David saw past Goliath to the invisible living God of Israel, the Lord of hosts. And David did the math. Who's this giant to defy the living God. Think of Daniel's friends who didn't bow to the king's golden image. Like like everyone else, they knew the power of the king. They knew about the furnace and the threat it was to disobey the king. But they looked past him to the invisible God about whom they said, even if he doesn't save us from the fire, we don't bow to you. Because we look past you, O king, to the only one we worship, the only one we fear. That's, those are the eyes of faith. Kent Hughes mentions another example. Elisha's prayer was just as relevant today for the church as it was when he prayed over his anxious servant. Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. Seeing the invisible means seeing things as they really are. Those are the spectacles worn by the righteous. Third, Moses obeyed the Lord's instructions for deliverance. Look at verse 28 with me. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, we don't know much about how much Moses and the people understood about this first Passover. He was told that slaughtering a lamb, taking the blood, and marking the doorframes and the lintel, consuming the lamb in an elaborate meal, would cause the destroyer angel to pass over that household. But here's the key as it relates to his faith. Regardless of how much they understood... They trusted and they obeyed. Raymond Brown says this, The instructions were strange, the demands costly, and the ritual unprecedented. But they did precisely as they were told. In simple faith, they kept the Passover. They relied on the God who had spoken to them through his servant, and we read in Exodus, Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Trusted and obeyed. That's faith. Don't overcomplicate it. They believed God in both the judgment that was coming 
and the redemption or deliverance that was being offered. So instructive. They followed God's instructions for deliverance and salvation. And this continued, number three, this continued for Moses' people as they trusted in God's provision amid danger. Look at, look at verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The walls of water looked like it would destroy them. Imagine how terrifying. You see these huge dams. One little hole, the pressure can be so intense, a fortified wall crumbles. Thousands of pounds of pressure just destroying everything in its path. Well, now imagine that same kind of pressure, but there's no wall. There's just water being held back by an invisible Force! What an intense moment. You've got a massive army chasing you completely helpless as they approach. On the other side, you have this inexplicable walls of water. You're terrified. You remember Moses had just said, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. They're understandably fearful, yet they trust the Lord and they start walking through. One step in, you're committed. (laughs) O'Brien says at that critical moment, they were prepared to attempt the impossible at the command of God. And so again, they trusted and they obeyed. And the walls of water that meant salvation for God's people were the same walls of water that meant judgment and death for the Egyptians. Biblical scholar Jim Hamilton has written an entire book, it's a good book, arguing that this concept is the central unifying principle throughout the entire Bible. God's glory in salvation through judgment. We see it over and over again. We see it in the Passover. We see it again here, don't we? God's glory is shown in saving his people through the same waters of judgment that destroyed the Egyptians. Vitally important for the original readers of Hebrews to understand Vitally important for us to understand today. Salvation can only be understood in light of the judgment to come. The author wants his audience to step forward in faith, trusting this same God for deliverance. God provided salvation in Jesus Christ, just like the water. Step in and walk through. Don't stop in the middle and turn back. Don't turn away. That means judgment. Step forward in persevering and enduring faith to the very end. In our remaining time, I want to consider with you some further application for us today. And it really has to do with this. True faith, the kind of faith illustrated in this entire chapter really, in particular here with Moses, makes choices. So let's consider two things that faith does when taking decisions. First, Faith makes choices by doing the math. Look beyond the visible. Moses' parents understood the power of the king, what he commanded. They understood the consequences, but were not afraid of the king's edict because they saw the invisible God and his authority and power and promises as greater. They also understood God had a purpose for their child, and they calculated and they acted accordingly. Moses had it all. In terms of privilege, opportunity for pleasure, the riches and ease 
of Egypt as his own property, but he made a calculation based on unseen realities. He embraced the reproach of Christ by identifying with and siding with God's people who were suffering because he saw beyond the visible to the eternal reward that would be his. He understood the anger of the king and the threat of that anger toward him, but he made a calculation. He looked beyond the visible, feared God instead. So for Moses and his parents, in their hour of trial, they didn't shrink back. And neither should the audience of Hebrews, and neither should we, because we can see beyond the visible. The great Scottish reformer John Knox confronted the Roman Catholic queen about biblical matters of faith. And people asked him, how could you do that with such boldness? Aren't you intimidated by her power and authority? And he said this, one does not fear the queen of Scotland when he has been on his knees before the king of kings. He saw beyond the visible and he did the math. Phillips writes about a habit of Napoleon before a great, before every great battle, Napoleon would apparently call his generals into him one by one. And he would sit down and, and, and he would just gaze into their face without speaking for a, for a while. Just letting them look into his face and they would just absorb this confidence and boldness for what was going to happen. Much more so with our invisible God. We're, we are in communion with him in prayer and in his word. This is how we gaze on his face. We find courage and confidence and boldness for whatever lies ahead. I think of today, it's weak compared to other places in the world, but in America, the fear of being canceled by the culture. We live in an age where the economic livelihood of a believer can be destroyed just by stating your belief in biblical truth. Now, this boldness doesn't mean... (laughs) We go looking for trouble on social media, fueling the fire. That's foolish and, frankly, dishonors the Lord. Or trying to be some kind of cultural crusader in your workplace, also foolish. They're paying you to do a job. They're not paying for your opinion. But it does mean, when pressed, we obey God rather than men. We do not bow and worship the idols of our culture, even when they threaten us. And make no mistake, this is what's being demanded, bowing and worshiping. I think of D.A. Carson wrote a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance, and it's a great book, but he just basically talks about how the fact that tolerance used to be a great word. It was, in the true sense of the word, it implies disagreement. Okay, but if you're forced to agree, there's no need for tolerance. Tolerance means I disagree with you on this really important thing, And that disagreement is respectful. I'm not going to try to hurt you or kill you or silence you for disagreeing with with me. That's the virtue of true tolerance. That's no longer what's meant by the word today, unfortunately. Nowadays, disagreement is no longer allowed. And what's demanded is full-throated celebration and worship of the secular idols or you will be canceled. Obviously, a faithful Christian cannot do that. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you on the last day. So let's not be afraid of being on the wrong side of secular history. Let's be afraid of being on the wrong side of Jesus and the word of God. It was scary what Pharaoh could do with his unchecked power. 
that God would preserve them. It was scary to this first century audience what Caesar could do. But God will preserve them, not necessarily escaping death like Moses did, but they will receive the final and better reward even if they surrender their lives. It's the same for many brothers and sisters across the world today where they have to make that choice on a much admittedly lesser scale here in the West. It's at least disconcerting what the cultural pressures can do to livelihoods and careers. What will we do in our time of trial. You know, Exodus is clear that Moses was afraid, but he obeyed God, which means he didn't ultimately fear the king. As someone has said, true courage is embodied in the guys who are scared to death, but go anyway. It really comes down to whom do you fear. We must displace one fear with another. There's a fascinating, instructive turn of events in Mark chapter 4, which illustrates this. You know the story of the disciples on the boat during the storm. They're tossed and turned, boat filling with water. They're understandably terrified, and they can't believe it, but Jesus is sleeping. Well, Jesus wakes up, rebukes the wind, tells the sea to be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm on the water. And Mark tells us something fascinating about the disciples' reaction. It says, and they were filled with great fear, saying to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Their fear of the storm was displaced by a greater fear. Who is this man? Brothers and sisters, to overcome our fears, we must be enraptured and captivated by the power and glory of the invisible God. And then you just do the math. And it's not just calculating one fear over another. More importantly, really, here, it's calculating the eternal joy that is yours in Christ over temporary happiness by walking away. As we've considered the reason, the reason Moses chose pain in this life over privilege, pleasure, and property is that he made that calculation about the eternal reward. Chuck Swindoll says this, the reason there's no sphinx in Egypt bearing the image of Moses is that he refused to sustain the sinful. No earthly monument, not even a handprint pressed into wet cement bears the image of Moses. He's forgotten in Egypt but he's greatly honored in heaven. Where do you want to be honored? You do have to choose. So please do the math. There's a false teaching pervasive in the world today called the prosperity gospel, and it perverts this choice. They say, come to Christ because this life will be so good. That's the anti-gospel, and it's from the pit of hell. That's not the testimony of the people with true faith we see throughout Hebrews 11, like Moses. Rather, Come to Christ because all you give up in this life is worth it. For the life to come which does not end, do the math. You need the spectacles of faith to see what is not visible. That's why Jonathan Edwards would pray this way. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. What do you see? What do I see when we look around? Man, it's a nice car. Oh, if I could just have that promotion? You know, life would be so comfortable and easy if I could just fill in the blank. 
Understand this from Moses' faith. Don't make too much of this world. Jesus was shown all the kingdoms of the world in the desert, and he was not impressed. I want to speak directly to you younger people for a minute. Note, the author concedes that the pleasures of sin are undeniable. Sin is pleasurable for a season. As one writer said, the pleasures of sin are always more enjoyable than the walk of the righteous at first. Your heart beats faster when you're near the sin. It's voluptuous and seductive. It feeds the flesh. It makes you feel good. Don't let anybody ever tell you that it doesn't. It brings a burst of satisfaction for a while. But listen, the way to eternal life is narrow and difficult. And Jesus says relatively few people find it. And I would add, statistically, even fewer people find it as they get older. So young people, now's the time to choose. And I know it seems like everyone else is taking the wide path, which is way easier. But what they can't see is what Jesus tells us. That way leads to destruction. You need to be in the word, be in fellowship with other believers constantly so that you can make decisions based on the realities of things that are not seen. You need to see the eternal joy that is yours in Jesus Christ. Listen to Swindoll again. Moses willingly traded the earthly monuments and acclaim, the perks, the power, and the pleasure for a reward in the invisible realm. He cashed it all in, every shekel of it, for a relationship with the living God. It was the best trade anyone could have made. What he lost, he couldn't have kept anyway. And what he gained, he could never lose. Moses couldn't do any better than that. And neither can we. End quote. So faith means do the math and act accordingly. Secondly, faith makes choices by keeping it simple. Obey the Lord. Sometimes we overcomplicate faith. My faith is strong. My faith is weak. Listen, it's not about you. (laughs) Simply obey the Lord. It's about him. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. Moses and his people were saved from the judgment of God by trusting and obeying the word of God about the Passover, which meant they believed God's word about the judgment and believed God's word about salvation, how judgment would be averted. In the case of the Jews on that day, It was the blood of the lamb on the Passover. It's the same today if you trust and obey the word about Jesus. He's the sacrificial lamb of God. You must believe God's word about the judgment that is coming. And believe and trust and obey his word about salvation in the blood of the lamb. We all stand under the judgment of God. Separation from him for eternity. That path that leads to destruction. Philip says, as the destroyer of the firstborn once visited Egypt, so God's holy wrath must visit all the ungodly in the end. But like in the Passover, God has provided a way of salvation in the sacrificial death of the Lamb. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed, whose life was given, who died and whose life was taken up again for the sake of any who trust and obey him. Don't overcomplicate faith. 
As Moses stood on the banks of the Red Sea and told the people, there's one way to be saved. Step through the way God has graciously made for you. So I tell you this morning, there's one way to be saved from the eternal judgment of God. And that way is Jesus. Step through and hold fast to the very end. Jesus told us in John 6, we considered some of these things this morning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You must take the steps of faith through the path God has graciously provided. You must trust fully in the Lord Jesus Christ and give your life and your decisions to him, all of it. Therein lies the irony of salvation in Jesus. It's absolutely free for the taking. And it will cost you everything to follow him. I'll close with an illustration from Don Carson about this first Passover that we read about. He tells of a fictional conversation between two Jews at this time in history. This is on the day before this first Passover. They were having a discussion in the land of Goshen. And one asks the other, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? The other one says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Have you slaughtered the lamb and put the blood on the sides and the top of the door? Frame, have you done that? Are you packed? Are you ready to go? You're going to eat the Passover meal with your family, right? Well, of course I've done that, he says. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary. I mean, with all these things that have happened lately, the flies and the river turning to blood, pretty horrific stuff. And now the firstborn are going to be killed? I mean, you have three sons. I only have one. And I love that boy. And the angel of death is passing through tonight. I know what God says, and I've put the blood there. But this is really scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. The other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. And Carson asks this question. Which of these two men lost his son? And the answer, of course, is that neither of them did. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith they exercised. But on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. They both trusted and obeyed the Lord. They applied the blood and did what he said. It's not the strength of our faith. It's the object of our faith that makes all the difference. And the object of our faith, brothers and sisters, the person of Jesus Christ is absolutely trustworthy. And the blood he shed on the cross is absolutely sufficient. Let's not overcomplicate faith. Let's keep it simple. Obey the Lord. Do what he commands you to do. Trust in him for your salvation. Hold fast to Jesus. Believe his promises and look to the reward that's coming. Lean fully on him and obey his word for your life and all of your decisions. Like the old hymn, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's faith. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word. 
And Lord, I pray as we listen to these things, as we read these things, as we contemplate these things, that you would do an eternal work in our hearts. Those of us, Lord, that know you, that we would press on with maturity and obey you in everything, even areas where we've struggled to or haven't, we would commit ourselves fully to you and obey you, demonstrating the reality of our faith. Lord, for those who are not saved, I pray that this word would penetrate their hearts today as they listen, that they would turn from obeying themselves and their desires to a far greater, better thing that is Jesus Christ. For the glory of God, we pray. Amen. Thank you.